This is a CBC podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me. And this special episode, an interview with Nicholas Bion, playwright of Butcher. If you're new to our show, we take some of the country's best theater productions and transform them into audio dramas. We then podcast them in three chapters and follow each show up with an in-depth interview with the playwright. Smart, disarming, thrilling. These are just a few words to describe Nicholas Bion's Butcher, a dark political thriller set in a police station on Christmas Eve that will leave your head spinning from its many twists and turns. He is one of our favorite writers, and if you're looking to catch more of his work, you'll want to listen to Iceland from season one in our feed. Nicholas writes for theater, television, and film, and his work has been produced around the world. His writing has garnered over a dozen awards, including a Governor General's Award for Drama, a Canadian Screen Award, and a Writers Guild of Canada Screenwriting Award. His play Butcher is currently in development to be made into a feature film. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Nicholas to talk to him about what compelled him to write Butcher, why he hired two linguists to create a brand new language for his play, and how he likes to tackle violence on stage. And by the way, if you haven't listened to Butcher yet, we've tried our best to avoid any major spoilers, but it's hard to talk about this play without giving some of it away. So we recommend that you listen to Butcher before you listen to this interview. This is my interview with Nicholas Bion. So for anyone who hasn't had a chance yet to listen to Butcher, can you tell us a little bit about what it is about? Butcher is a play that examines questions of justice and revenge. Can you tell me a little bit more about the premise? What's the setup? It's a, it's a great one. The play starts on Christmas Eve. It's at a police station, and an old man's been left there by people unknown, and he's wearing a military uniform. He's been beat up. And he's got a butcher's hook around his neck, and on the hook is baited a business card with the name of an intellectual property lawyer. And as the play starts to unfold, we start to learn that um, at the center of it is is a war that took place in the country of Lavinia. And, and actually, I have to admit that when I was reading it, I didn't read the foreword. And I was reading in my mind Latvia, I think. And I just forgot or didn't take in that it was not a real country because the language is, is so convincing. What made you decide to create an imaginary country? That decision was made because I really wanted the conversation to be about the themes of the play and not about a specific conflict and a specific side in any, any said conflict. And so by creating an invented country that has its own language, that was for me a way to make the conversation about what I wanted the conversation to be about. Rather than having somebody talk about the specifics of that particular Exactly, and, and say, you know, well, you got this wrong, or that's not true. or And those conversations are important, and there's room for that, but it's not the conversation that I wanted to have with this play. And how hard was it to create a country that doesn't exist, to make it feel like it does? 
Creating the country was quite easy. It was creating the language that was, and I, I say it was difficult, but actually it was quite easy for me because I literally went to the University of Toronto Slavic Languages, knocked on a door, and spoke to uh, Dr. Christina Kramer and basically asked her to invent a language for me. And within five minutes, she agreed. So it was really quite, from that point of view, it was quite easy. Do you know anything about her process in doing that? I don't know anything about the process in detail, but I know that Dr. Kramer and her collaborator, Dragana Obradovich, were very precise in how they invented this language. It has its own syntax. It has its own grammar. They really did an exceptional job at creating this language and making sure that it sounded both authentic and gobbledygook at the same time. Is it inspired by another language? It's a combination of several Slavic languages. So that's why it has a kind of Slavic flavor to it, but why it's not understandable uh, by anyone because the words are complete nonsense. And do you know anything about the process for the actors to be able to figure out what that accent was and to be so convincing that they were indeed talking about something that could be understood by other people? So the one thing that I did ask Christina when I first approached her was this language has to be phonetic because the actors have to be able to learn it phonetically. So I think that once that was in place, then it became a lot easier just in terms of like memorizing for the actors. But then Dragana uh, recorded all of the dialogue in Lavinian in her own Slavic accent. And so we gave that to the actors and we made it available to other productions. And so when, when actors who needed to speak the language had a reference to it, also to how it sounds. One thing I thought was really interesting was in reading the play, I had the privilege of knowing what the characters were saying in that language. But I know that a lot of it isn't translated for the audience, which has an interesting alienating effect. Yet you feel like you sort of know what they're saying? Why did you choose to have so much of the dialogue in something that the audience wouldn't know was said? One of the first, the first scene, in fact, that I came up with for the play was this confession that was made and it's still in the play and it's very close to its original form. And I wanted this confession to be done in such a way that we as an audience receive the violence of it without receiving the details of it because uh, we don't need the details. Uh, and, and in fact, in some ways, and this is a, it's a bit of a, a thing for me, is I'm not a great big fan of violence generally. And I always laugh a little bit when I say this because I think people think Butcher is a very violent play. And I think there is a lot of, uh, there's obviously a lot of violence in the play, but the violence is either abstracted or obfuscated in some way, and in some cases linguistically, and in some cases it was partially the staging that, that people have done, but the parts where we see physical violence, that physical violence is somehow hidden in some cases or, again, abstracted in some way. I actually wanted to ask you about that because I had heard about the actual stage production and people fainting in the audience even though the violence is obscured, as you say, it's, I guess the implied violence is enough to push people on the edge. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
I think people's imaginations will always do a better job than I will of filling in the kind of blanks that I've left there. And I think that's where a lot of the reaction to the play in terms of its violence comes from. And one of the things that I always ask when, you know, a couple of times people have confronted me about the violence of the play and I always ask them, I'm like, what did you see? What did you actually see? Because there's not a lot that they see, but their mind fills in the rest. And for me, that's part of the beauty of theater. So even though that you were able to obscure some of the violence in the play, you as a writer had to research torture, genocide, assault, all that stuff. And I just wonder, to be able to create that so convincingly... And to make so many unique characters with diverse perspectives, you obviously had to do a lot of research and you had to sort of go there mentally. For someone who doesn't like violence, how does that affect you? It's hard. It's hard to do that research, but it's reality. You know, it's it's going to sound horribly cliche, but it's the human condition. We're a species that is very violent towards each other. And so in some ways, there's no point denying it. And so while the research is hard, for me, it was also, it's important. And it it makes me understand more about being human and, you know, living in this world. And, And frankly, in some ways, it's probably one of the most pleasant parts of the process, only in that it's a constant learning. For me, that's really exciting. Did you research any specific wars more genocides for inspiration or for research for the piece? I did. I think the assumption is often that the play is based on the um, the Yugoslav War, but actually the uh, Rwandan genocide was the original event that the play was based around. But then a couple of plays came out. Uh, remember Goodness, Michael Redhill's play came out, and there was another one who's title escapes me at this moment. And so I was like, okay, I don't think I have a whole lot to add to that specific conversation. And so in fact, that's when I decided to abstract the location of it and make it an invented country. And what was the initial inspiration? Was it war or was it the idea of justice versus revenge? It was, um, I hope I'm not misquoting here. I believe I had read this in a book by Carla Del Ponte. And the line was something like, you can have peace or you can have justice, but you can't have both. And I found that really arresting because that really challenged a lot of my notions of, you know, how the world operates. And so Butcher was really an examination of that statement and kind of going, is that true? And just kind of looking at both sides of that statement. Because justice doesn't provide peace? Because in order to have, I I think really don't want to speak for her, but I think what she's getting at is that any attempt at real justice means that someone is not going to be happy with that result. And so peace is not possible in a situation like that. I find it a really challenging statement. And while I, I really don't have an answer for it, I would say that my experience in researching and with Butcher kind of leads me to think that I think she's right What I thought was so interesting about it was there were so many different perspectives and whether it's revenge or justice, it depends on who the person is. And you can't say necessarily that this person received justice because it depends on your definition of justice. And in the play, it sort of goes through all the various stages of what 
can be considered justice, and that's not actually how that one character would define it. Another really interesting thing about this play is that it deals with politics and war and genocide, but it's very entertaining. How do you thread the needle between those two things? You know, I think if I had a cardinal rule for writing a play, it's don't bore your audience. And that is not to say that it needs to be trite or that it needs to be, you know, just pure entertainment. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that theater is written for an audience. It's not written for the actors. It's not written for me. It's not written for the director. It's for the people who are coming to see the show. And so with Butcher, I wanted to be sure, in a way, because the material is so heavy and in some way because the the thematic question behind it is kind of heady, I think it needed a counterbalance to that. And so I immediately thought, well, it needs some kind of thriller like it needs a thriller sort of uh, vehicle for that to go through. And so I went back to Hitchcock, who is kind of a touchstone in terms of how films are kind of constructed. And I mean, a lot of that, I will say, is he worked with excellent writers. And so it was with Butcher, I kind of looked at it in the same way in that if we stop, I find with Hitchcock, if you stop the movie, everybody's asking the same question. And so with Butcher, I was trying to do the same thing. If I stop the play at any point, I want to be sure that everybody's asking the same question. So that's sort of where that came from. And the humor at the beginning, in particular with Inspector Lamb, is very disarming. It feels like it's going in one direction. And then as it unfolds, there's so many twists and turns without giving them away. When I was finished, I was like, wow, Nothing is as I think it was at the beginning. Nothing is as it seems. And then I'm like, how did I get fooled? Like, how in the craft was Nicholas able to make me believe these things and not see them coming? And obviously, there must have been a lot of rewriting for that to happen. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the craft of planting those red herrings or those those false realities. Yeah, I I think you used the perfect word, which was disarming. I find humor is a very, very effective way of not tipping your hand in terms of what's coming next. I did a very similar thing with Elephant Song. Elephant Song starts with a lot of humor, and at one point there's a turn, and the turn is, is a bit unexpected only because it's also a tonal shift. And I think with Butcher, there's a similar thing. So I wonder, as a writer, if you were handing it over for people to read a lot to to find out if they saw things coming. Because once you know, yes, absolutely, everything is foreshadowing. How did you um, test that theory, test knowing that you couldn't see the twists coming? Yeah, that's interesting because it's the kind of play where you only get a first read once. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but somebody who's read it before, when they read it again, they can't give you the same kind of notes that they could on a first reading because they know what's coming. So I will say I leaned heavily on Wayne during the initial rehearsals. And we spent, you know, and, and credit to Alberta Theatre Projects, they gave us an extra two weeks of rehearsal because we asked for it, because we knew this is going to be a hard play to like just get the the kind of the timings right. And we didn't have an ending. I kept going back and forth on the ending and I kept doing very, very bad things with the ending. So it it took a while to find the right note for the ending. 
I wanted to ask you about that because I, I know Chris and I have talked to you before. And I remember asking you if you know the ending when you write a play. Did you know essentially the ending, but you were just trying to finesse the exact moment? Or Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, I knew what the ending was, but I didn't quite know what the right image was to finish the play on. It's hard to talk about it without giving anything away. But there is a character that appears at the very end, and there was a lot of back and forth on what to do with that character. And I was gung-ho on having that character speak. So there are versions of this play where there is an entire dialogue between that character and another character. And it's so funny to look on, on, back on it now. It's horrible. It's, it's terrible. I don't know what I was thinking. But thankfully, I had good people around me who were like, please don't do that. And now you see that that character shouldn't speak. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely the right decision that she doesn't say a word. I wonder if you needed to get that out so you sort of know who she is and what that moment is. Probably. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In listening to the play and reading the play, the characters are all on the surface very unlikable. Yet I'm rooting for them all. Even the butcher, strangely. How did you craft that? Or were you thinking about making sure that the audience would have some empathy for these people, even though really none of them really deserved it? Yes, I think it was important that the characters not be stuck in a good versus evil duality. And so I really wanted to find ways where each character had elements of them that were recognizably human and that we could all in some ways relate to so that there is a separation between one's actions and who one is. And I think that's a really important distinction at the end of the play. So that's where that came from. And again, humor, very helpful to do that. Funny characters are automatically more likable, but there are obviously other ways of doing that too. There's you know, one's relationship to one's family is a big element in that. And so all of these things help to create a more interesting play and character. In fact, that's a lesson I learned from Iceland, where Halim is a very, very difficult character to like, and yet it's the character that people like the most often. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And that really came from a conversation that I had with Ravi where we were having difficulty with Halim. He wasn't quite working. And Ravi just said, I just, I need to agree with him more. And that was like one of the best notes I ever got because I was like, great, I know exactly what to do. And so that's how that came about. And I, I really have taken that lesson with me um, in future, future plays. That is a great character. You sort of love him and hate him at the same time. So I love that... Um the female character in your script is sort of a anti-hero. 
that I'm rooting for in some strange way. I think also because I understand if I were in her circumstances, perhaps I'd feel the same way. Why did you choose to have the female character interested the most in revenge slash justice? For me, part of it was was always looking at the at the overall kind of makeup of it. And I thought, what an interesting counterpoint to introduce into this very, very male room a female character. And a lot of the play is also about power dynamics. And the power dynamics shift quite radically at points in this play. But I think for me, one of the most interesting things about those power dynamics is that the power dynamics are not based on violence. They're not based on physical prowess. It's a very different kind of power. And I was really interested in playing with that. We have a lot of people that are writers that listen to Play Me. And I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about your process overall. So I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that I'm still learning my process. It's a very mercurial thing. And I think I think the important thing is to show up. You know, I rent an office here in Toronto and I just go there every day. Uh, Monday to Friday, kind of nine to five-ish, like I keep banking hours more or less. And, you know, there are days when I don't write a word. There are days when I'm like, I go down some silly YouTube vacuum and it's terrible. But in some ways, I feel like as long as I show up in the morning at the office, that's a really good start because at some point it will unblock and then and then you're there and then you can work. I think keeping in mind that perfection is not the goal, just writing is the goal. And I think that's really how I've approached things. I think I've been much kinder to myself in the last few years, which has been a, a really good thing. I think I used to be so like, it needs to be X number of words a day or else but then you realize there really is no or else. So I think that it helped to kind of just be nicer to yourself about the bad days because ultimately, hopefully, the good days outweigh the bad ones. Do you find it an isolating or lonely profession when you're when you're actually doing the writing? Yeah, uh, it is, but I, I think that's actually probably part of the reason I also rent an office is it's a work share space. So there are other writers around me all the time. So when I need to be alone and writing by myself, I just go to my little cubicle. And when I need to chat and be more gregarious, I go out to the kitchen and I talk to people. So it's an, it's actually a really great balance. You don't find people being around you distracting if you're writing dialogue or you can I, tune that out? I got I got headphones and I know how to use them. Any tips for writers that are just starting or just trying to find their way? I think, you know... The obvious one, which is write. Don't talk about writing. Don't worry about what tool you're using. Don't worry about what software you're using. Just write. And I would say the other the other thing, and not to be too much of a broken record, is the idea of don't bore your audience. Don't tell your audience something they already know. And just tell a good story. I have to say one of the things I really like about Butcher and Iceland is that they are, are about things and they make you think about things, but there's no overt lesson. So many times when people write about issues, it's sort of like, and here's the writer's takeaway for you. And I like that you can be so entertaining and make people think on a number of levels and not sort of feel like they're supposed to think one thing because that's what you were implying. Yeah, I think... I know so little 
And so part of the joy in a way of writing a play is being able to have an argument with yourself as a writer and go, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm much more interested in the question. I think it was Carol Trocio who says plays are about asking questions, not answering them. I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but I've always felt that that is very true. And in fact, any time I go to see a play where I'm like, oh, they have the answer. I'm just not interested. I just don't find that that's a good way to have a conversation. Well, speaking of having a conversation, thank you so much for letting us make Butcher into a podcast as well as Iceland. I think it's a great play for people to listen to, not only for the piece itself, which is amazing, but it's just such a well-crafted script that I personally love to just listen to it over and over again and I think it's an excellent thing for people to be able to glean some ideas from. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to work with you and Chris. That was Laura's interview with Nicholas Bial. To listen to all of the episodes of Butcher or to hear Iceland also by Nicholas, please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts or listen through the new CBC Listen app. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. It makes a big difference in helping us get our podcast out to as many people as possible. And also, we love connecting with our audience. If you'd like to let us know what you think of our show, please email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at playmepodcast. That way you can get some behind-the-scenes glimpses into how we put together this podcast. We'll be back in January with Boy in the Moon by Emile Scherer, adapted from the best-selling novel by Ian Brown. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expec Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.